True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The young man arrives at the house he's supposed to be looking after for the bank. It's a repossessed property and it'll be going up for auction soon. The previous house sitter suddenly asked for a transfer to a different property. He doesn't mind the job. It keeps a roof over his head, and you sometimes find interesting things in these long-abandoned homes. He decides to have a look at the garden. It's mostly overgrown, but the sun glints off something white and round, partially buried in the hard soil. When he walks over to take a better look, he recoils in horror. It is very clearly a human skull. Someone has lost their life here, and they weren't the first to die at this killer's hands. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to Episode 80, The Serial Crimes of Tommy Williams. This week's episode represents the hard work and determination of a dogged detective to bring a serial killer to justice. And this week's true crime TV must-watch is the premiere of The Lover's Lane Murders, starting on Sunday the 15th of May on CBS Justice, which presents a similar theme. Between 1986 and 1990, the isolated Colonial Parkway in the US was the scene of four brutal double murders. Chilling similarities connected them, but no arrest was ever made. Now a team of former FBI special agents intends to solve these cold cases and provide answers for the victims' families. Continuing every Sunday to the 5th of June on DSTV Channel 170. A huge thank you to CBS Justice for sponsoring this episode of True Crime South Africa. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new Patreon supporters for the week. A huge thank you goes out to Alzan Feltzman, Nicole Whitehorn, and Candice for your support on Patreon. Thank you so much for your support, everyone. It really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. If you like discounts, because who doesn't, head over to King Online for your health and beauty needs. Print Crowd for all your printing requirements and use the code TCSA10 at checkout for 10% discounts and support the show at the same time. And you can also get 10% off when you order from Wallpaper Online by using the code TRUECRIME at checkout. Other forms of support that make a huge difference include following the show on social media, inviting your friends, family, postman, hairdresser and parole officer to listen and leaving reviews on the podcast platform you use. Today's case represents some of the absolute best detective work I've ever seen in a case I've researched. It also represents the reality of what detectives are often up against when the justice system does not play ball with them. The perpetrator in today's case holds two records in South Africa among identified and apprehended serial offenders. But as interesting as that is, for me it was the fine line 
between justice attained and justice denied, which this case walked, that really stood out. Because, were it not for one detective's refusal to give up, this perpetrator may still be walking among us. Research for today's case came from Dr. Gerard Labaskachny's book, Profiler Diaries, his podcast series, Profiler Africa, and court documents related to this case. So let's get into episode 80, The Serial Crimes of Tommy Williams. It's the 28th of April, 1987, and eight-year-old Marta Buerta, who lives with her mother, brother, and uncle in Galeshewa in Kimberley, which is in the Northern Cape province of South Africa, is approached by an elderly neighbor to walk to a nearby shop and purchase bread. I have no doubt that there was probably a small promise of use the change for sweets, as was so often the case when neighbors wanted trips to the shop from us when we were kids. Marta agreed and set off to the local store. The store that most of the residents of Marta's street used was run by Ellen Mpiwa. Ellen confirmed that Marta made it to the shop and purchased the bread. When she was there, she was alone. Somewhere between that point and home, though, Marta went missing. Her family immediately became concerned when the young girl didn't return home, and along with community members, they searched for her. There is no mention of whether a police report was made regarding Marta's disappearance, but days went by, and there was no sign of her. Then, several days after she disappeared, a 16-year-old boy who lived a few houses up from her hammered on the Buerta's door. They had to come quick, he said. He'd found Marta, and it wasn't good news. Marta's horrified mother followed the boy to a nearby abandoned stadium. He led them through a warren of empty buildings, until, beside one, he paused, moved a pile of leaves, and lifted a plastic bag to reveal the body of eight-year-old Marta Buerta. The investigating officer who would be tasked with investigating Marta's murder was Detective April. The man surveyed the scene and interviewed the young man who'd found Marta's body, The teenager said he'd stumbled upon the horrific scene when he'd entered the abandoned stadium to find a drink of water while he was walking home that day. Dr. J. F. Else, the district surgeon in the area, performed an autopsy on Marta's remains. He determined that her cause of death was strangulation and that it was possible a rape had been attempted upon her before or after her death. Of course, 1987 was long before we were using DNA in criminal cases, so this was not even an option for Detective April. It was clear that Marta had to have been lured from somewhere near Ellen Mpiwa's shop by her killer, as the route that the stadium was on was completely opposite to the road she would have taken to return home. With almost nothing to go on, the murder of Marta Buerta became a cold case. Her case docket was filed, and would remain untouched for another 21 years. On the 17th of April 2004, 13-year-old Tabang Bihi's father returned from work to find that his house in Warrington, north of Kimberley, in the Northern Cape, had been ransacked, and his son was nowhere to be found. Mr Bihi 
knew that his son was a good boy and didn't think for a minute that he'd been involved in what had happened there. But after calling the police and making a missing persons report, there was little more he could do than conduct some of his own searches in nearby areas. He came up empty, though, and soon he started to consider that perhaps something truly terrible may have happened to Tabang. While a father was losing sleep over the whereabouts of his son, a few streets away in late April, a man called David Papier was starting a new house-sitting job. He'd been called by Absa Bank that morning to take over the house-guarding of a repossessed home which had not yet been put on auction. This is done to prevent people from illegally occupying the home before it's auctioned and causing problems for the bank. The previous house-sitter employed by Absa had quite suddenly called that morning to ask to be moved to another house-sitting job. He didn't like staying in that house, the man had said, and insisted he wanted to move as soon as possible. Absa Bank had duly obliged and called Papier to take over the job. Papier would usually stay in the houses with his girlfriend Angelina. It was an opportunity for them to spend time together, and when they arrived at the home that day, Angelina busied herself inside the house preparing a space for them to sleep and make food, while David went outside to check the back garden. Within minutes, he came running back inside, out of breath and shouting to Angelina that they had to call the police. While walking in the backyard, David had discovered a human skull, partially exposed, with the rest of the body presumably in a shallow grave beside it. Detective Inspector Fernando Luis of the Kimberley Serious and Violent Crimes Unit was called to the scene that day and watched on as a forensic pathologist carefully unearthed the body. The body was wrapped in a multicoloured piece of material and when Luis walked through the house, he found a matching section of material that had been flung over a window rail as a makeshift curtain. The piece of material had been torn in half. There was also a shoelace around the victim's neck, indicating that the person had likely died from strangulation. Detective Luis was aware that there was a 13-year-old missing boy in the area, but the body was so badly decomposed that it was impossible to make a visual identification. Of course, considering David Papier and his girlfriend were in the house at the time of the discovery of the body, that meant they had to be persons of interest. But the couple were soon able to prove that they'd only just taken over the house-sitting job. Luis reached out to Absa Bank to find out who had been in the house before them, and he was given a name that would haunt him for years to come. Tommy Williams 33-year-old Tommy Williams was the kind of man who didn't really stand out in a crowd. He was thin, had a slight moustache, and didn't often make eye contact. He certainly had his moments of friendliness and charm, though, and didn't find it difficult to make friends. Williams had lived in the Northern Cape his whole life, and as an adult, he supported himself and his regularly changing girlfriends with menial labour jobs such as the house-sitting for Absa Bank gig. When Detective Luis checked Tommy's background, he didn't find any record or really anything of substance that stood out. 
but he knew he needed to speak with the man who'd been in the house when a dead body had seemingly been buried in the backyard. Luis brought Williams into the police station for an interview, and soon realized this man was not going to make the process easy. At first, Tommy even refused to acknowledge his own identity. When he eventually did, he continued to stonewall Luis, which, understandably, only made him more suspicious. Although the body found at the house was yet to be confirmed as belonging to Tabang Bihi, the detective had very good reason to believe this was indeed the child. The pathologist had confirmed that the body fits the age range for Tabang. The body also most definitely belonged to a male person, and a forensic entomologist confirmed from insect activity on the body that the victim had very likely been killed on or around the 17th of April, the day Tabang went missing. No other males of that age range had been reported missing in the Warrington area either. With this in mind, Luis had visited the boy's father to break the devastating news. The detective had also discovered that Tommy Williams had been briefly living with his girlfriend just a few houses up from Tabang Bihi. When Tabang's father was shown a picture of Tommy Williams, he identified the man as someone his son had been friendly with. Tommy would often greet the boy if he found him in his front garden when he walked past, and Tabang, a boy who'd been taught to respect his elders, was always willing to chat with the older man. With the list of items that had been stolen from the Bihi home on the day that Tabang went missing, Detective Luis secured a search warrant for the premises that Williams occasionally shared with his girlfriend. There he found several items on the list. With this in hand, Luis arrested Tommy Williams for the murder of Tabang Bihi. After being read his rights, Williams said he would tell the detective what had happened. The man claimed that on the 17th of April, a person called Ishmael Montingue had entered the house he was guarding for the bank with Tabang Bihi. He said that the man had forced him to hold Tabang down while Ishmael strangled him. Ishmael had then buried the body in the backyard and left the premises. As for the stolen items, Williams was willing to admit that he had stolen these items from the Bihi home, but he stood fast on the claim that he had not killed Tabang himself. Although Detective Luis found the story completely ridiculous, he did due diligence and tracked down Ishmael Montingue and checked his alibi for the 17th. The man had an ironclad alibi and was immediately discounted as a person of interest. Besides all of these circumstantial evidence against Williams, he had also unintentionally provided a piece of guilty knowledge in his fake story. He'd said that Sabang had been strangled by this alleged other man, and that is exactly how Sabang had died. This paired with the knowledge that the other man he had implicated had a solid alibi meant that he had to have been the perpetrator. As Detective Luis was investigating this case, Dr. Gerard Labaskachny, who headed up the investigative psychology unit at the time, had been travelling with his fellow unit member Elmarie Myberg from the Western Cape back to Johannesburg. Whenever they did this trip, 
they would stop over in Kimberley to see if the Serious and Violent Crimes Unit there had any cases they needed assistance on. Luis was very pleased to see the team because he wanted to chat to them about Tabang's murder. Fernando Luis had been trained by the previous head of the IPU, Dr. Mickey Pistorius, in psychologically motivated crimes, and he felt that this one warranted a closer look. Labaskakni would proceed to interview Williams again with Luis, and for the most part, the man gave the same story. Labaskakni told Luis that he agreed that there was a high likelihood that Williams was their man, and asked him to keep him updated on the case. Detective Luis charged Williams, and he was remanded to the awaiting trial section of the local prison. While there, a fellow awaiting trial prisoner would claim that Williams had told him that he was being falsely accused, and he had only found Tabang's body in a bath in the house, and had nothing to do with his murder. These oft-changing stories were a clear indication that Williams was not telling the truth. The truth doesn't change, no matter how many times you tell the story, no matter who you're telling it to. The bare facts of a truthful retelling will never shift. Detective Luis was pretty sure he had a slam-dunk case against Tommy Williams, but he knew he had one more hurdle before he could get to trial. He had to convince the prosecutor that the case was solid enough to prosecute, and this would be where the greatest challenge would lay. Because the prosecutor declined to take Tommy Williams to trial. Luis was furious, and perhaps more so because the prosecutor couldn't adequately explain why they believed the case could not be won. Unfortunately, though, that was the end of the road, and Detective Luis had no choice but to release Tommy Williams back into the community. Four years would pass without Luis hearing Williams's name again, but he never forgot. To him, it was a travesty that the man was walking the streets, and I cannot even begin to imagine how Tabang Bihi's family must have felt. Probably regularly seeing the man, at least in the first years before Williams left Warrington. Then, on the 5th of February, 2008, a disabled man called Norman Vartemeyer disappeared from his home in Rudapan, 90 kilometers from Warrington. Norman had struggled with spinal difficulties and gross irregularities since birth, and was scheduled for a major operation to help the pain he suffered as a result of his ailments. Norman had been nervous about the operation, but he was looking forward to it, because after he healed, he had the promise of far better quality of life. On the 5th of February, Norman's mother had asked him to walk to the shop to buy her prepaid electricity. The shop was not far from their home, and it was a trip Norman had made many times before. He set off, but never returned. For days, the family searched for Norman, made a missing persons report, and spent sleepless nights worrying about his safety. Then they started to receive anonymous telephone calls. The caller told them that they shouldn't worry about Norman. He was safe, but had left town because he didn't want to have his operation. These calls continued for days. 
the family found it extremely strange because Norman had had many operations in his life, and there seemed to be no valid reason why he would avoid this one. Then, on the 12th of February, a week after Norman had gone missing, decomposed and partially burned remains were discovered in a field in Rodapan. When police contacted the Vartemeyer family to say that they believed the remains belonged to Norman, they were understandably devastated. Police asked if they'd be willing to come to the mortuary to see if they could identify the remains. The family agreed, and one of Norman's friends said he would come with to support the family. That friend's name? Tommy Williams. After positively identifying Norman, the family would receive another anonymous phone call. This time, the caller put the blame for the murder on a man named Tefu. But the Vartemeyer family was not convinced. Something was off with Tommy, and he seemed to know more than he was letting on. Norman's uncle, cousin and a friend decided they needed to talk to Tommy and find out exactly what he knew about Norman's murder, so they invited him to meet them in a nearby field. Now, I will admit, when I heard this, I thought, uh-oh, this is not going to end well for Tommy. But actually, these three men were really smart about what they did. They seemed to connect with Tommy on a personal level, and got him talking, all the while recording the conversation on a cell phone. There was no violence nor intimidation, and Tommy Williams actually ended up confessing to having murdered Norman Vartemeyer. This recording and confession would become a vital part of the evidence against Williams later on. With this evidence in hand, Norman's family went to the police. By now, the Kimberley Serious and Violent Crimes Units had been assigned to the case, and who was the investigating officer? If you guessed Detective Fernando Luis, you are correct. When Luis heard that Williams was linked to yet another murder, he was almost not surprised. Although Williams had seemingly been quiet for some time, Luis had never believed he would not offend again. Now, he saw his chance to eventually bring this man to book for both Tabang Behe's murder and that of Norman Vartemeyer. Williams was soon arrested and detained, and when his home was searched, safety boots that Norman had been wearing on the day of his murder were found in Tommy's possession. Norman's cell phone was also tracked down and found to be in the possession of Tommy's cousin. The man said Tommy had given him the phone as a gift on the 6th of February, the day after Norman went missing. When an autopsy was performed on Norman's body, although a conclusive cause of death could not be established due to the condition of his body, the pathologist did find that Norman's hyoid bone was broken. The hyoid bone is located in the throat, and is often broken when a victim is strangled to death. With Williams once again in custody, Detective Luis went about building a watertight case against him. This time, he thought, this man was not getting away. He pulled Tabang Behe's docket and prepared to build a case for both murders against the man. While he was doing this, though, 
someone mentioned something to him that would change everything and expose the horrifying truth behind Tommy Williams's violent past. Kimberley is the type of place where, if you're born there and you enjoy living there, there's a good chance you'll live there your whole life. And as such, many residents of the area know the long-standing members of the community. One such person knew Tommy Williams. In fact, that person had known Tommy when he was a teenager, living in an area called Galishewe. That was way back in 1987. Detective Luis was told that in that year, a young girl had been murdered in the area, and a 16-year-old neighbor of the girl had found the body. That 16-year-old boy was Tommy Williams. Unfortunately, the informant could not remember anything more about the case, not even the victim's name. So if Luis wanted to look into this, he would have to do some serious digging. Now, I want to point out that Luis did not need another murder in order to convict Tommy. He already had a pretty strong case against him for the murders of Tabang Bihi and Norman Vartemeyer. But for Luis, it wasn't about that. For him, it was about the fact that there was a little girl who had lost her life 21 years before and never got justice. There was a family who had had to live without finalization in that case for two decades. And so, Luis went to the library and started to scroll through old newspaper articles from 1987. The informant couldn't even remember the month that it happened in, so Luis had to look through an entire year's worth of articles from the local newspaper. Luckily for him, he would only have to work through January, February and March before he got to April and found the headline he was looking for. Eight-year-old Marta Buerta found murdered at abandoned stadium. Now Detective Luis had a name. But if you're thinking, well awesome, now he can just run it through the system and a case number will pop up with all the docket info. Um, no, not quite. Marta was murdered in 1987. Nothing was digitized back then. And the case numbering system they used was also completely different from what's used today. Not to be deterred, Detective Luis went to Galishewe Police Station and told the docket clerk what he was looking for. The man's face said it all, but there was an additional snag. The room where the file dockets were kept was locked, and someone had lost the key many years ago. Since then, Filed dockets had simply been posted through a pigeonhole in the door, and they lay in a pile with absolutely no order. Kalishewe did not often get recalls on old cases, so when the docket clerk heard what the situation was and that a young girl had been the victim in the 87 case, he offered to manually search for the docket himself. Now, not only does the thought of all of these dockets, which represent human beings and their personal tragedies, lying in a pile on the floor of a police station, absolutely horrify me, 
but I also can't even imagine the enormous task this clerk was undertaking. But after many hours of searching, he found it. Mata's murder docket was handed over to Detective Luis, caked in dust, but he was one step closer to nailing Tommy Williams. When Luis started looking through the docket, he realized how much times had really changed. Today, the person that discovers a body is almost always a person of interest, because we know murderers love to insert themselves in investigations, and the I.O. at the time had interviewed Williams. In fact, it would emerge that there'd also been a witness that had come forward who said they'd seen Tommy with Marta on the day of her disappearance. But in 1987, they seemingly couldn't fathom that a 16-year-old boy could be responsible for such a vicious murder. So they discounted Tommy Williams as their suspect. When Luis looked at the descriptions of the crime scene, it became clear to him that Williams had once again unwittingly provided guilty knowledge. He claimed at the time that he'd gone into the stadium to look for water, but firstly, all residents of the area knew that the stadium had long been abandoned, and all services had been shut off. Secondly, the area where Williams claimed to have found Marta's body was on the opposite end of the entrance. He would have passed several toilets and change rooms before he got to where she was. But the statement from the family about how Williams had pointed out the body was the most damning. They said that Marta's body was so well covered that they couldn't see her at first. It had been Williams who had gone to the body, moved the pile of leaves and lifted a plastic bag covering her. When they'd approached the area, it honestly just looked like a pile of rubble. So how had Williams stumbled upon this body if he actually couldn't see it without already knowing what to lift up to find it? Twenty-one years later, many of the people involved in Marta's murder case were either deceased or untraceable, but Luis was actually able to trace the original investigating officer, the witness who'd seen Williams with Marta that day, and the woman who owned the shop where Marta had purchased bread that day. I mean, this is just honestly amazing. I can't even imagine how many hours of work must have gone into just that. And if you're thinking, well, it's not that hard, everyone's on social media. Well, not in 2008. Facebook, for instance, was only launched in 2004, and it would only really become popular in South Africa around 2010. So social media wasn't even an option for this detective. Detective Luis now knew that he had a serial murderer on his hands. As such, he made contact with Dr. Gerard Labaskakni and reminded him of their 2004 case. After receiving all three dockets, Labaskakni was able to start drawing up a linkage analysis. I've discussed linkage analyses in previous episodes. It's a form of expert testimony that was pioneered by the IPU in the Quarry serial murderer case. Essentially, the profiler will take the cases presented to them, and without paying any attention to an identity of an offender, they will draw comparisons between scenes, modus operandi, 
locations and victimology and attempt to understand whether the same offender could be responsible for all the cases at hand. Again, the linkage analysis does not say who the offender is. That is the job of the I.O. to prove. It simply demonstrates to the court that the crimes were all committed by the same person, and therefore if an offender is identified as being responsible for one crime, they must also then be responsible for the others. Labuskakni would find many connections between the three murders he looked at. The first was the method of killing, strangulation. Secondly, all of the victims were individuals who were easily overpowered. Two of the victims were children, and the third was a disabled adult. This is an important point, because looking at this series, you might think, well, don't serial murderers have a type? These people are also different. And yes, this offender did have a type. His type was people that he could dominate. Children and adults who were weaker than him. Another aspect of the crimes that could be considered similar fact evidence was the post-mortem tampering of the bodies. Mata's body was covered in leaves and a plastic bag. Sabang's body was wrapped in a piece of material and buried. Norman's body was partially burned. Labaskakni felt that he would be able to show in court that a single offender had certainly committed all three crimes. Detective Louis started to dig into Williams's personal life with the view that he might find more victims. I've previously mentioned that Tommy Williams moved through romantic relationships quite swiftly, and Louis would discover there was a very good reason for that. Several of Williams's ex-partners admitted that he had been violent with them. At least two reported he'd attempted to strangle them during domestic violence incidents. The act of strangulation in an intimate partner violence incident is a significant risk indicator for intimate partner homicide. The minute a partner puts their hands around your throat in any violent manner, no matter how brief, and regardless of whether you lose consciousness or not, you can almost be guaranteed that that person has the capability to take your life. Thankfully for Tommy Williams's partners, they were able to recognize the danger they were in and get out before their lives were taken. The women had not reported the incidents, but when Louise spoke to them, two of them were willing to lay charges of assault with intent to do grievous bodily harm. This would only add to the growing case of similar fact evidence against Tommy Williams. With a massive cache of circumstantial, similar fact and witness testimony evidence, Luis took his case to prosecutors Tienis Barnard and Michael Mashucha. This time there was no doubt that Williams would stand trial, and the Behe family were informed that they would finally get the opportunity for justice for Tabang. Tommy Williams was arraigned on nine counts, namely attempted rape, three counts of murder, one count of kidnapping, two counts of theft, and two counts of assault with the intent to inflict grievous bodily harm. He pleaded guilty to the theft charges, but not guilty to all the rest. The state refused to accept this plea, 
and the judge entered pleas of not guilty on his behalf on all the charges and proceeded with the trial phase. Tommy Williams, though, was not going to go quietly into that trial, and he did everything he could to stall it. For the first week of the trial, he refused to speak to his attorney, flat out refused to say a word to the man who was desperately trying to defend him. Eventually, the judge was able to convince him that it was in his best interest to engage his counsel. Then, one day in court, Tommy Williams pulled a crumpled piece of paper out of his pocket, opened it, and consumed a white substance in full view of the entire court. He collapsed and started to have convulsions. Williams was rushed to the hospital and recovered, and eventually returned to the trial. The trial would eventually get underway in earnest, and one of the first pieces of business was the trial within a trial to determine the admissibility of the confession recording taken by Norman Vartemeyer's family. Interestingly, in South African law, it is much easier to get a confession taken by a member of the public entered into evidence than it is for one taken by a police officer. In fact, investigating officers may hear confessions, but they may not use those confessions against defendants, unless they've been read their rights, the confession is also given to either a senior officer in no way involved in the case, or a magistrate, and the defendant signs to acknowledge that they have not been coerced in any way. For a member of the public, though, the burden of proof is far lower. The judge really just wants to be sure that there was no violence or other form of coercion involved in getting Tommy to confess, and once he'd confirmed that, he allowed it as evidence. Detective Luis also ensured that as many people as possible related to the 1987 case were present to testify, and of course those related to Tabang and Norman's cases testified as well. The various pathologists presented their reports about the causes of death and the conditions the bodies were found in, and then Gerard Labaskakni led his similar fact evidence through the means of his linkage analysis. Very often when passing down sentence in a case like this with multiple charges, a judge will err on the side of caution in terms of what he finds the defendant guilty for, so as to avoid any possibility of reason for appeal. In this case, the judge found that while Williams was guilty of the murder of Marta Buerta, it was not possible to prove without a doubt that he had attempted to rape the girl. Similarly, in Sabang's case, he was found guilty of the boy's murder, but the judge felt that his kidnapping could not be proven. Williams was found guilty on all the other charges, including the murder of Norman Vartemeyer. He was handed down two life sentences for Tabang and Norman's murders, but because Marta's murder had occurred before the minimum sentences legislation had been passed, the judge could only give him 10 years for her murder. In passing down judgments, Judge Majit congratulates the members of SAPS and the prosecutors on working so hard and going above and beyond to ensure that each victim in this case got the justice they deserved. When he was found guilty of those three murders, Tommy Williams gained two ominous titles, 
He is the longest active identified serial killer in South African history, and he is very likely also the youngest identified serial killer in South African history. What worries me about this case is those very empty 21 years. I have no doubt that Detective Luis would have done everything possible to identify other cases that Williams may have been involved in, but it remains very possible that there are other victims we don't know about. Although I can fully understand the limitations that the 87 detectives dealt with, and really even if Williams had been identified at that time, he would have been charged as a minor and it wouldn't have stopped him from killing again, it's still really sad that another two people had to lose their lives before Williams was stopped. Norman's murder pains me, because he really did not have to die. And while I'm sure the prosecutor in that case thought that they were doing the right thing, I can't help but wonder if letting him go was really all that could have been done. I think this case is pretty terrifying for a few reasons. Firstly, Williams was so young when he started killing, and that is actually very strange for serial murderers, who usually start killing in their late 20s to early 30s. The way that Williams selected his victims was also sickening. He purposefully chose those who he could easily dominate. Marta Buerta was just eight years old when she died. Whenever I hear of cases like this, I can't help but think about where I was when this happened. Marta was just a year older than me, and if I think about the life I've lived so far, Everything I've experienced, the joys, the pains, the successes and the failures, really puts into context for me what that man actually did the day he took her life. He stole all of that away from her. Tabang Bihi was just a respectful young boy who felt that he couldn't ignore an older person when they spoke with him. That was his only mistake and his killer used that to snatch away his future. Norman Vartemeyer was 28 years old when he was murdered. He'd had a difficult life, one filled with physical pain and discomfort, but on the horizon was the promise of better quality of life after his big operation. But that was not to be, because the man who he thought was his friend turned out to be his worst enemy. Detective Fernando Luis did such an exemplary job. I don't think I can express how impressive this man's care for the victims in these crimes was. I can almost picture him slogging away at this case, hours spent scrolling through articles, rifling through dusty dockets, hunting down two decade-old witnesses, never forgetting the young boy he saw that day buried in a backyard, always remembering the vulnerable young man who was so cruelly treated. I can almost picture them, Marta, Tabang, and Norman, standing side by side, watching this dogged detective refusing to give up on them and smiling, and sending silent words of thanks. 
Matabuta, Tabang Bihi, and Norman Vartemeyer. Rest gently. Thank you for listening to episode 80, The Serial Crimes of Tommy Williams. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Live Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon. Mm -hmm.